there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. What's good? Um, I was going to say chicken butt, but that's uh, not... Um, it's that's, what's up, chicken no, that's, butt. It's, it's, it's guess what, chicken butt. Oh, guess what, chicken butt. I don't know. I'm terrible with these things. Yeah. Well, here we are. Yep. Another week. Another week. Another day, another dollar. Another dollar. Today, what are we talking about today? Today, what well, we both read, I'm sure probably a lot of you read Rock's... It just said a lot of you and I laughed to myself like, <laughs> who the fuck is listening? Um, I'm sure a lot of you read Roxanne Gay's really wonderful essay on the price of black ambition this week. And I know it both it really, you know, struck both of us and oh, I just you know, we were you know, every week we try to come up with a with a different topic and sometimes we have to choose like make a composite topic out of like different elements, but this was enough. Yeah. I mean I actually uh sadly I was not I'm haven't been very well versed in Roxanne Gay's actual body of work. Like I had heard of her. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I got the notion that I that I didn't like her. I remember you told me that the other day. You made it sound like she had lied on you. Like, like she did something real, real, right. real bad. Then you were like, oh, Roxanne Gay, Roxanne Gay. Yeah. You said it like she owed you $50 and then, four years ago. Yeah, it was sad. I don't know. I don't actually don't know where the hell I got that from. Reading this and going back and like actually trying to read some stuff after I read how amazing this article was, I was like, oh man, I fuck with her. She's, she could be. Yeah, you know, we all sometimes have to, you know, we fall from grace. Every we day. have slip ups. You know, mm-hmm. we fall down. But we get up. There you go. I almost saying that. <laughs> Same. But yeah, no, so her article, The Price of Black Ambition, is is really great. It's a really short read. Well, not really short read, but it's a pretty it's, short read. It's a fairly short read. It takes so many different turns. There's so much texture to it. Yeah. And I also, I, I mean, I feel like it's really, really relevant, like, right now. Like, a lot of this conversation has been going on for a while. And it's, I mean, it's always cool to see people kind of, people who are known for their thoughts on other things bring themselves into the equation. Mm-hmm. Which, starting to do, like, a surface dive into her work. That seems to be something she often does, which mm. is really cool. And mm-hmm. I, th- I found the way she did it to not be, like, aggressive or, like, oppressive She, like, way. has this really... It's it's weird because it's not... I don't want to say, like, authoritative, but, like, I can consider her... I can think of her as an authority. Like, I definitely... I trust her opinion. I trust her scholarship. I trust the thought and the effort that goes behind her work. But she also has this incredible vulnerability that yeah. she brings whenever she writes about herself that doesn't take over 
the topic in a way that's like egomaniacal. Yeah. That's a good segue into into the text. Like one of the things that I, I thought struck out me first, and we're just gonna honestly just dive through this article like all the way through. Mm-hmm. Kind of pick it apart a bit, was kind of her first little anecdote. Like so she was talking about how in kindergarten mm-hmm. they asked her to do this like worksheet where you had to color in some fractions. The glass is like half yeah. empty or half full or whatever. And she got it wrong. Ended up getting an F. I mean, I didn't realize you could get an F in kindergarten. I didn't one. know you could either. But eventually her parents found out about it and they made her feel like pretty bad about it. Mm-hmm. And she said that that really caused an amazing amount of uh, drive and ambition in her because she didn't want to feel that, that, I guess... She didn't use the word shame, but that's what I identified it as. She didn't want to feel that again, so she really like strived to always be the best student that she can be. I don't know about you, but that like connected with me straight up. I'm pretty well known as like a slacker. Na- well, not now. I mean, now I'm killing the game. I was stop. Okay, I was going to say I feel like every. At least every other day, you're jumping on my ass about something. True. On some real type A shit. Yeah, but like that's Not now. Not at all. Because now, and this is that is recent. I'll be honest with you. It, it's very recent. recent. Yeah. So okay. Anyway, but back in the day, I was a pretty big slacker. But before that, I was actually really, really intense, uh, like straight A student, all like perfect A's or. And that came as a result of a situation happened actually with my dad. And this is, I mean, it's an interesting. He's probably not going to be happy that I'm sharing this. But my sister, she was maybe in the sixth or seventh grade. I'm like really young, super, super young. Yeah, like kindergarten. She got her first C. And he lit into her, not in like, you know, like beating her ass, but like in terms of like, I'm just kind saying, of, you got to specify. language, but okay, I understand what you're saying. But, uh, but he went off and he was just basically like, I'm nervous for the spiral of what's going to happen. <laughs> I just don't want you to end up working at McDonald's. Oh, my parents, no, it was always prison. It well, was, it was it, like, it was seriously like we had these in elementary school enrichment, pro- like enrichment yeah. classes. And so they weren't, they're were, they were like our first taste of electives in the third grade. It was before, you know, you had something like art class when you were in middle school or high school where you had, you know, an elective. Um, so I think I had one, I think I had mistakenly chosen calculator fun. And they, the way they get ready. That sounds awesome. That <laughs> sounds like something that, actually back then I was really good at it. Now not so much. But um, you didn't even get letter grades or number grades, which is what we got when I was in elementary school. You just, um, rather you didn't get them in your like elective courses. In your elective course, you just got graded on like seldom, like occasionally, frequently, and consistently. Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, if you're getting like basically a straight A or something like that for an elective course, you're getting all consistently. So that means you're just on your shit in calculator fun all the time. And calculator fun was the only elective course where I got one like check mark in the frequently box. Mm. So that's just like one less than consistently. And I was eight years old and my parents told me that if I did this poorly in school again, then I was going to end up in jail. And I was like, wait, yo, how? <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how are we going to do that? And they were like, well, if you don't do good in school... You can't go to college. If you don't go to college, you can't get a job. If you can't get a job, you don't have any money. If you don't have any money, you have to sell drugs or steal. And I'm like, what the fuck is I mean, when you put it like that, though, like... (laughs) So they said that, and I was like, ooh, this is is real shit. Like, I cried because I didn't get a 100% on a spelling test. I got a 95% in the third grade. I cried. And my teacher was so freaked out by this. 
I don't even know if I told my parents this. My teacher was just like, "It's not that bad." It's not that. Bad. <laughs> she she literally she was just like, "This doesn't mean anything." I've never had teachers say to me my entire life, but she was just like, "You know, this doesn't mean anything." And I'm like sitting there sobbing. No, so that that shit is real. Yeah. After that, I was like, "Well, fuck! I never want to have this conversation with my dad." And it eventually happened because, like, I mean, I got to high school, you discovered you. that. Well, I don't even know if it was that. I basically was just like. Me being a nerd is not working for my my love life. Like it's just not. Oh it's just not working. So I switched hardcore over to class clown. Mm-hmm. And you know, I brought home my first like I think I got a D, and my dad like lost it. He cried. I was like, whoa, like this is really intense. So anyway, I got my shit together until I got to Howard. But all that I feel like is a similar story. Like it, mm-hmm. it happens in like different cases, and like I think the you know some environments get it more than others, but. What do you mean when you say some environments, or some people's homes? Some people's homes get it more than others, yeah. but I feel like there's this constant, and I don't think even think that this is exclusive to the black community. No. But this theory of you got to be shamed in order to want to aspire for something great. Mm-hmm. I thought that she took a big step in connecting that to a personal story like that, mm-hmm. and, but that really, really hit really close to home. I mean, coming back to the article, I think she she talks about how you know that sticks with her. That kind of evolves into this perspective that people have on the talented tent. Oh, yes, which I think I actually said last week. Yeah. That I hate it. I hate the talented tent. I actually like I identify with it. I mean, I was a big I was a big WB Du Bois fan, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's a that's a great way to be. I think that's great. Yeah, but I mean, she kind of came for him in this article a little well, bit, like I mean, not even a little bit. But she's not the first person to do that, and I don't necessarily think of it as coming for him when there's like a, a gap of a hundred years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In yeah. between, it, like I think it's. Just I mean, you're kinda, not gonna be mad. And his theory is not. It's like people who thought the world was flat. Like yeah. that's not like given the information that you had at the time. That's not necessarily a wild assertion. So like it's not a, it wasn't a wild assertion back then that ten percent of black folks, the top ten percent of us, were gonna like pull ourselves up our bootstraps and then lasso everybody else and then like climb up this mountain. But the interesting thing about that, the um the connection she made that to I guess white supremacists back in the day who basically created that you mm-hmm. know, they didn't make that talent to tenth name and give it that kind of brand, but she talked about how Basically, they said that it would be the 10% of black folk Mm -hmm. that would be acceptable or civilized. They're kind of like, all right, we can only take this so much. Yeah. We can only take this so many. It reminds me of, um, I can't remember their names. I don't remember if it was the the Puritans or whoever. One of the early, like, Christian groups that came over in, like, the early United States. Yeah. And they were kind of like, look... Jesus told me he can only take the some of y'all back. I think they were like, it's only 144,000 of us that can come that can come and get saved. So it's already been pre- predetermined. So good luck. Like yeah. that's how I felt like like it was the same sort of thing where they're like, it's only 10 percent of you guys. So other 90 percent. Good luck, y'all. Yeah, but I mean, I had never heard that connection before, though. Like mm, I mean, oh, that was something I, I was. It's interesting, especially considering that we are both two. HU graduates. Yes. And I mean, that's like, that shit's written in like invisible ink on the back of your diploma. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's something like. If you put like, it under a heat lamp, it turns it, brown. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is like, it's crazy because I'm pretty sure I heard that at orientation from an official of the school. Heard what? The uh, the concept of Talented oh, Tent and us telling. There was, an, there was a school organization called the Talented yeah. Tent. There were some kids. I don't know who they were. I don't know. I didn't join shit when I was at Howard. Same. Most people don't even know that I went there except for like you yeah. 
and like maybe two of our other friends. But I do remember there being a talented tub group. I remember that much. And I, th- I remember thinking it was bizarre as fuck. But It's exclusionary in the sense of it makes people who haven't gotten, who haven't hit certain like quote unquote touch points. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel less than. Absolutely. Like they don't have value, which is not, which is clearly not well, the case. It's have- also why people say we bougie too. There, it excludes a lot of people who may not have certain markers of whatever, yeah. you know, we feel success class is. Class success. Yeah, exact class successes. It also gets some of these highfalutin folks yeah. <laughs> feeling themselves harder than they already have been. It's not always called the talented tenth. Yeah. There are it comes in other shapes and forms. It comes in other ways. It can exist in a variety of different spaces that black yeah. people inhabit. Not necessarily all black spaces. The same dynamic can play out in a workplace, can play out in a different university environment or a different scholastic environment. It makes everybody else feel excluded and feel like shit. It doesn't actually work. You know yeah. what I mean? In addition to both of those <laughs> things, it doesn't actually work. I don't like I don't want to use the term respectability politics just because I feel like respectability politics and problematic are everywhere. I feel yeah. like some people just learn them and they're like white privilege, intersection. res- intersectional, <laughs> respectability politics. And I, I think those are obviously all valid terms. Yeah. But I don't want to just like throw it out there like it's like a casual buzzword. It doesn't matter how good you are. And I, that's one of the, the things that obviously, you know, we know it from living life. Roxanne Gay discussed it in the essay. It it doesn't. It's not just exclusionary. It doesn't just make certain people feel undue pride and just general assholishness, I suppose. But it also doesn't save us from anything. It yeah. doesn't get us anywhere, and it doesn't. You mean doesn't, we ain't made it yet? Exactly. Not only have we not made it. I mean, we're we can't be protected in yeah. any way. I can't even wrap. I don't even have the. I don't have the speech right now to discuss that. You can only make but so many gains, and we cannot be protected. The fuck? Well, yeah, the basically. Fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, I mean, that's real. And then she also talked about, you know, the the statement, you got to be twice as good to be, you know, to get half as much. Those kind of things come, like, hand in hand. Twice as good and talented tent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those things work together, like oh, peas in a pot. they absolutely do. In addition, also playing off of that, like, shame aspect of it. So you can't really be yourself because you have to be twice as good as these white folks in yes. order to actually get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because, especially considering how much Howard tried to push you into that lane, mm-hmm. that Howard was the first place <laughs> where I actually felt comfortable exactly. saying, fuck all that. No, exactly. I, I, um, one of the things that jumped out to me, and I think about Howard in, in many ways was exactly what I needed at that point in time. I was 17 when I first started school. I had grown up, as I mentioned a million times, in Farmington Hills, Michigan, which is now the demographics are changing. When I was growing up there, it was mostly white people. Like There were so few black families that everybody in, in town knew who my, my parents this is a town this is a large suburb it's 80,000 people wow. and like most people in town knew who my sisters and my parents and I were like I got pulled over I was home six months ago and I got no I wasn't I was home last Christmas and I got pulled over by a cop and he was just I got stressed yeah. obviously and he was just he took my license and he's talking he's like oh your taillight was out just wanted to make sure that you knew that and he you know he's like oh let me see your license again so obviously I give him my license yeah. he starts in a swimsuit he's like you were in ballet with my daughter <laughs> Stephanie 10 years ago how are your parents how are your sisters I know that that's totally not yeah it's that's, never been an interaction <laughs> so, that so, I've had so, with so, the so, police so, <laughs> so I growing up like in 
just strange suburban environment. It was obviously all I knew, but I was nervous moving to D.C. I was nervous moving to an urban area, and I was nervous moving, going to an all-black college because I didn't grow up around any black people. In fact, a lot of black people that I went to high school with didn't fuck with me because I was corny as fuck. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't in a lot of their classes. So I was nervous to go to Howard. But something inside me was like compelling me to go. I didn't know it when I decided to go because it was the only place I applied out of state. Attending Howard was like the first time that I had the luxury of forgetting that I was a black person ever in my entire life. And I didn't know that I had been missing that until I went to school there. And it felt like being on vacation for four years. Like you said, yeah, it was like the first time that I felt like I didn't have to be representative of anybody. I was a person from Michigan. I was a person who had a Midwestern accent. I was a person who had parents or high school sweethearts or two sisters or like to wear juicy couture sweatsuits. I was not, you know, I was a girl. Yeah. I was just, I wasn't a black person and then everything else first. No, I mean, my situation was, was different, but very similar in that, like, I grew up in a neighborhood around, I grew up around a lot of black people. I'm not going to act like that wasn't the case i often didn't go to school with that many black Mm. people though like my classes i was always in we had honors and standard i'm not gonna go into that but (laughs) i was always in the honors classes and you know usually the own like one of like maybe three black boys Mm -hmm. and then there were a lot more black girls but 90 percent white 90% 90% white. Okay. Um, and that's like from elementary to like so when I graduated. Sim- it was a similar similar environment. Yeah. But we had a lot of black students in, oh, like, in, in the, the school. school. Oh, we didn't. That was a different. So like I had a lot of black friends, but they weren't in the classroom with me. And also our interests just after a certain point diverged. I mean, of course, I love Three Six. You know, all the other Memphis staples, I could joke with the best of them. You know. I've never seen you do that. Okay. Um, well, you sh- I don't you need won't. to. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a limit to what how I could engage. Mm. And so when I got to Howard, at first it was so much pressure because, I mean, I literally had a friend who was in standard classes come to me and be like, Eric, you made it. You got out. You got to go there and do something. And I was like... That's stress and pressure. Was, like I was like, what the fuck, man? Like, come on. I mean, aside from the fact that everybody thought I was going to become like a militant, like black nationalist and grow like dreadlocks and try to like start a revolution. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, like <laughs> there was all this pressure, like get there and be, you know, that twice as good to get half as much. Knowing that that's the deal, but that was just what you had to do. Mm-hmm. My first year, like I didn't really know anybody. I had like three friends at Howard. I didn't really go out there or really talk to people as I much. I had a uh, 3.8 GPA. <laughs> like, Maintain that. <laughs> that was after my first semester. So I get like three quarters of the way into my freshman year. I started actually communicating with people. I started actually talking to people and like starting to lose, not focus, but starting to lose the grasp of that look to your left, look to your right. Somebody's going to be gone and thinking that person is going to be me. Mm-hmm. And then starting to think about like who I wanted to be. Obviously, I'm completely fucking different than that person (laughs) in school. It's been 10 years. But, like, it was amazing that I I was like, I like to learn. I don't really like to do work. So, (laughs) I'm going to try to do as much of the learning while as little of Of the the work work as possible. possible. Delicate balance. It's like being on a BOSU ball. I know what that's like. I mean, I got out. (laughs) (laughs) But no. my teeth. Yeah, exactly. Like, that was was amazing for me to have to, like you said, to be able to let go and just be like a person, be a human, just be 
a man and connect with those people, that's completely gone now. Well, that's that's one of the things that I find funny about her. And actually, I'm, I'm assuming that most HBCU graduates feel this way. And actually, it popped into my head. When you were talking about where the theory of the, the talented Teth came from, it was actually from, I don't know, remember his first name, Henry Morehouse? The guy yeah, who actually exactly. yeah, who started Morehouse, who rather, I think it was Atlanta Baptist College or, or something like that. Whatever they called, Morehouse was called before they named it after him. Like, this guy who invented this talented Teth, this at the time wealthy white liberal was like the person person Morehouse was named for it, which is it's bizarre. It's levels but, to the yeah, shit. it's levels I was gonna say it's bizarre, there's levels to it, but it's not any wilder than then Oliver other, Otis Howard. Like. Yeah, exactly. It's not any wilder than any of the other shit popping off. Howard was a place where I, like now I'm an adult and I like I was very invested in forming and understanding my racial identity as or rather like I knew I was black. That was never an issue understanding that, wrapping my head around that. But what it meant it, or it meaning or it needing to mean something yeah. at all was something that I thought critically about for the for the entire time that I was there from 17 to like 21. But now as an adult that like I'm comfortable with my racial identity and I, I obviously identify as a black person and it means something to me, but it's not everything. It's a part of my identity. It's an important part. So it's like a part that can be difficult at times, but now I don't always need to be in that space. I don't yeah. always need to be in that space. I can Howard helped me establish both home, a sense of home, and also like a homeostasis for my life to the point where and it corrected a lot of things. Like a lot of this is gonna sound so Howardy, but I don't care. <laughs> I had it imbued me with a deep love of self and love of people. Okay. All right. Sorry. See, and that's that not happened. funny. That's it's really not funny. I know that's... it's corny as hell what I'm saying. It's like true. I I mean I feel it's like I, I feel like like Lawrence Fishburne is going to pop out from around the corner any second. I was like say Alanya. Early, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like early '90s Lawrence Fishburne is just going to pop out, like I'm Trey Styles. But it, yeah, it imbued me with a deep sense of you know self love and a deep love of, of people. But I, it allowed me to be able to figure out what that home base was, so that I could find and establish that everywhere. So it's not like my entire life needs to be like Howard. Now I can find home other places, but I also have these safe pockets. Because when I think of Howard, I think of safe. I have these safe pockets. Not all my friend group is all black people. But a lot of them are from school and a lot of them are from, you know, just living life and being an adult. You know, where I live is important to me. Living in Bed-Stuy, like we talked about last week, yeah. I feel, that's what I mean when I say I feel safe here. I, because of Howard, I can establish those little pockets of comfort in the rest of my life. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi. It's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations... I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. I definitely agree with that, but it's also... For me, it's a little different. I feel myself playing into that twice as good. Oh. Um, <laughs> much more now than I ever gave a shit about it for the past eight years. Mm-hmm. And not because, like, honestly, it's not even just because I'm trying to get have as much shit as white people. That honestly has really has nothing to do with it. More so just feel an immense amount of pressure about the decisions I make and what that will mean for my family. That I really never thought about before like I thought about it you know if you're always thinking about it, you're like I want to provide this I want to you know yeah. have this like Cosby-esque lifestyle mm-hmm. but then once you get out you start you get a job the first your first job and oh, you're like God. oh I don't get paid anything how the hell am I actually supposed to make enough to justify oh lifestyle I understand like exactly what you're saying at first I misunderstood you I thought you meant that now having a family like had occurred to you it's more will I be able not just like will I experience this shame or will I disappoint my parents or will I disappoint myself? But often unevenly stacked debt. Yeah. So I corny as hell. How am I able to make a house of cards? <laughs> I mean, my family <laughs> live. <laughs> exactly. But it's the truth. No, and, and it's sad because in me having those fears or whatever, I'm playing into that system that I don't fucking mm-hmm. agree with. Lord knows. But what's the alternative? Like there's, I, I don't know the alternative. Yeah. You know, that's not even really a real question. I don't know. That's just an interesting thing that's kind of resulted from that. And it's, you know, it's something I think we can come back to. But I just always feel the need to be trying to do more. I mean, this is probably why I'm up everybody's oh, ass you are. all you the are. time. You are. But that's that's where it that's where it stems well, from. One just tiny little point, just to piggyback off what you brought up, family, because I hadn't actually necessarily thought of that when I was processing, you know, this piece. But I what I what I don't want anybody who knows me or has met me before know that knows that I have like a thick layer of I don't give a fuck just slathered upon my person but I still at the core of me have that very intense you know same thing like gotta you know gotta be up an hour earlier you just be five steps ahead need to be eight times as prepared I still have that at my core in addition to so many other things it made me so stressed as a young person made me such a stressed out kid I don't want to pass that stress along to my children and so when I think about I know you said it's not a real question, but when I think about how do we not have that, I mean, I don't want my children to see me. I mean, I, I want them to see the reality of things. I don't yeah. want to sugarcoat anything. I guess like the browbeating and the the almost like just like emotional self-flagellation that can come with feeling like you're a failure. You haven't done everything or your ambition has not been satiated. I don't want my children to see me working through the extra shit of that. I want them to be able to feel like they can be people. I completely agree with that. But I think the the thing that I've struggled with that reality could look like for, for me is that I also don't know how to connect mm-hmm. that 
with seeing what my kids will be like and probably being like, oh, my God, you guys got to get your shit together. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to look completely different. I know I'm not going to be able to process that at all. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm going to struggle with it. And, I mean, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but it reminds me very much of Blackish. Oh, like, yeah. sad. Oh, my God. I never thought I would say I identify with a character played by Anthony Anderson. I mean... You heard it here first. But, like, that shit is real. That fee hockey shit? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like if my child came to me and was like, Yeah, I wanna play fee hockey, I'm I would I would I would literally roll up and die. Well that's the thing. Like I asked I talked to my parents after the first week of Blackish came out and I was just like I think we talked about this beforehand, yeah. we discussed Blackish. You and I knew that we were interested in it, we wanted to watch it, we wanted to support the show. More so I was I realized that the show is really, really, really about it's about a family, but it's really about how Rainbow and Andre, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross and Anthony Anderson's characters sort of are caught between two worlds. Like yeah. the children kind of kind of are but they're still sheltered by youth yeah um but how their youth and and also their parents the the life that their parents have provided for them but just how parents deal with that so i i want to know how my parents my parents identified with it i talked to my dad my dad was like oh yeah (laughs) there's so many there's such a this bizarre tension well, my parents are, you know, were born and raised in Detroit. My sisters and I primarily grew up in the suburbs of, and my parents had no idea how to parent three black girl children in this primarily white environment. They yeah. did the best that they could, but there are so there were so many gaps as far in my like upbringing between like my parents. They, like I said, they did the best that they could, but I think it's almost impossible to be able to account for the weirdness of that environment and just yeah. how, like, just utterly, it, like, unprepared as a parent you are. I think blackish and what you just described, like, though that t- that tension and that stress of trying to, like, deal with the, the weirdness of your kids and not necessarily <laughs> recognizing that is compounded by the fact that they lived in a white neighborhood and they kind of made it, you mm-hmm. know, which I think is very similar to what you just described. Mm-hmm. I think that is going to happen at any level especially with how and this is gonna make me sound real fucking old but like with how weird kids are today no, like no. i think like it we also made me think about jaden smith jaden smith like oh my god is this <laughs> this child hoodie is... dress yo hey the hoodie, hoodie dress, dress. No, no 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 i'm not knocking it i, yeah. I after watching yes. the fast music video three times oh yeah i, I you know, maybe on a hit some squats, get that hoodie dress you know, on. I gotta get my thigh get game right, out. but you know, maybe what the hell? Why not? Summer. I was trying to be cool. We can match. maybe on my bike. <laughs> Please wear the hoodie dress on your bike. <laughs> People make so much fun of Jaden Smith, but like at the end of the day, he is himself, and he is really changing. Oh my god, it's gonna sound ridiculous, but he is changing <laughs> how you can be successful and weird, and also be be pretty black. Yeah, I mean, he's black. No, he got even, even Willow too. Like, Willow too, definitely with whip my hair almost to a higher degree. If you think oh, about yes. it. And you know, I, well, I follow her on um, on Twitter. She <laughs> said you follow a how old is she? A fourteen year old? Yeah, she's real cool. I look yeah. up to her. Oh, okay. So I look up cool. to her. I look up to her because she's she's actually thirteen, um, <laughs> but she is extremely self possessed in a oh. way that I actually like. In all, all truth be told, she is extremely self possessed in a way that I am still trying to access at twenty six. And I, I, you know what, mate. God himself strike me down for saying that because that is the damn truth. I feel like the both of them are. But basically, yeah, what we're saying is like it's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge. But I'm also that also makes me really happy that there can't there is some like possible way that I don't understand right now. Mm-hmm. Money, money plays into money it. Money definitely <laughs> will help. Fame also helps. Yeah. Yes. There's this possibility that there's this role that they can have 
where they can be as you know weird as they want to be. Mm-hmm. Wear all the hoodie dresses in the world. Yeah, I think they actually, honestly, I saw a picture of Willow in a fader, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's the same hoodie dress. Have, <laughs> they, they share, which is cute. That's so cute. <laughs> we keep going. Hand me downs. You know that they'll have this path forward to something where they'll feel more comfortable in their own skin, and maybe they can access that relaxed feeling of being able to just kind of let go. Yeah, being. And as Jaden says, pre-exist. That's what he's. Oh, that's what, that's that's what he said at the beginning of the. No, well, no, he says like in in, and I just pre-exist. pre-exist. Yeah, I was singing a song to myself at work today, and I, I like had to pause, and I was just like, "Okay, we're doing this now." No, so there's definitely that, and the, the thing, I guess, to tackle the flip side, and this actually this was the one of the few points of contention I had with it with the entire article mm-hmm. to bring it back to bring it back to bring the text. It back, bring it back, bring it back. I wanted to sing Travis Porter. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, a little different. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Obama announced the program, "My Brother's Keeper." Mm-hmm. So, "My Brother's Keeper" is looking to. Not necessarily reform, but increase the opportunities that uh, young men of color have in well, the world. Hold on, let me just read exactly um, as quoted in the article. An interagency effort to improve measurably the expected educational and life outcome. Educational and life equated is very yeah. interesting right there. Um, educational and life outcomes for and address the persistent opportunity gaps faced by boys and young men of color. So she had some serious issues with this because she said, and she said on the surface. So I'll give her that, that it seems like she hadn't necessarily done a deep dive into the merits of the program, Mm -hmm. but she had, she took issue with the way that the program was developed. It seemed to be playing into this respectability politics game in that they try to get young men of color to dress better, to quote unquote, take more responsibility within mm-hmm. the community. And, you know, the the kind of pull up your pants aspect that everybody came at Bill Cosby for, in addition to like Don Lemon and all them. Mm-hmm. That I agree with, but I don't think that's necessarily what the program is. Just from my job history, mm-hmm. I've actually done some work with, with programs like My Brother's Keeper. There's a program in New York um, run by the city called Young Men Young Men's Initiative, and there are a variety of different programs that uh, that my brother's keeper actually worked with to develop their like programming? their programming. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is used, like they do, ha- you know, they encourage the, they encourage the young men to to like wear suits, to dress mm-hmm. to dress quote unquote appropriately, to talk appropriately with a more mm-hmm. conservative fashion. A part of that does kind of rub me the wrong way. But what I will say is doing that provides these young men access to opportunities that they would not be able to have be able to have otherwise. I'm saying quote unquote grooming. Yeah. So like it's all well and good to say that we should be accepting these young men as they are Mm -hmm. and, you know, still working to provide better, better educational opportunities Mm -hmm. and and opportunities, period. But at the end of the day, nobody's coming to meet a little black boy where he is. And I, I didn't get, I didn't so much get from, from reading the piece that she was attacking my brother's keeper. I think that I think I think, that, I think yeah. you're both in the same space actually, where yeah. I also am. Where long term, I like you said, I, I nobody's currently coming to meet a little black boy where he is. Long term, that's my goal. Yeah, I want. I think that that is fair. I think that you know, I think that a, a lot of non-black and brown children. So mm-hmm. children, yeah, a lot of non-black and brown children um, are are have the leeway to kind of be met where they are. Yeah, you know, black and brown. Boys, a lot of the times, since we're speaking about them specifically, they're 
rarely, if ever, met where they are. And I think that they deserve that consideration. They deserve that personhood. They deserve that humanity. So long, long term, I, I would, and I'm sure you would as well, like to live, I prefer to live in a society where my brother's keeper isn't necessary. But short term, that's something I, I, I can get, short term, I can get behind it. Yeah. You know, short term, I can get behind it. I don't, and I can get behind it while still feeling critical of some of the tactics, even feeling on some level ashamed. I almost hate that, like, I feel ashamed of, of the of the tactics because I didn't set the tempo at which the tactics were necessary. Yeah. You know? Well, no, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. At the end of the day, I think you look at, like, you look at the data and, and you, mm-hmm. you talk to the kids and this shit is bleak. Like, so you got, it, it kind of needs yeah. to be where it is. But I agree. I mean, I think you can't be critical. And I, I'm, there are definitely parts of these types of programs I, I don't necessarily agree with. And it's even been, you know, it's even being explored whether or not they're, they're like, their actual utility. But in terms of, like, the results that they mm-hmm. that they create. This shit is Band-Aids. Like, what did yeah. my, um, what did my, I used to work for a city councilwoman. She was a social worker. And, one, and she actually worked for a different city councilwoman who's now, since passed away but she was serving until she was like in her 80s i think i think her 80s um but she used to say that social work or you know and kind of social programs and initiatives were really just a band-aid for for you know shitty policy yeah yeah so ideally there can be more than one like i see what you're saying there was actually another just tiny little point that this brought to mind i um i've been interested in uh the research behind grit Mm-hmm. which um, has been studied by Angela Lee Duckworth, I think, of University of Pennsylvania. She got a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's done a TED Talk on it. It's wonderful. Basically, grit is kind of this, now it's become somewhat measurable. It's this educational term or concept or skill, I think. It's a skill that is not quite the same as intelligence, but it, you could, it, people are looking to measure it in the same way or to teach aptitude, like the same way that people teach intellectual aptitude, mm-hmm. the same way they try to, I guess, shape that they are trying to like shape grit in a, in a similar fashion and grit is literally whether or not you can keep going in the face of setbacks to achieve long-term goals so i had read about it before i had you know seen like uh, duckworth talk they had a piece on vox earlier this week talking about how grit as a concept in the in, edu- in, in some education circles had gained popularity specifically because it was equally attractive to do more research on grit with poor students as it was with ones who were more well off. You know, right now they don't know how to teach it, quote unquote. They don't know how to measure it or, you know, a lot, I guess a lot of colleges or college admissions programs are like, oh, you know, if if we could figure out a way to test for grit, then we would use that instead of, you know, IQ tests or instead of college board tests, like if we could, we could figure out, like basically people want to bottle grit and figure it out. It drives me crazy because in the article, they sort of like make it sound like the concerns of wealthy children who are kind of lazy, like teaching them grit is just as important as teaching poor students who don't have shit grit, (laughs) which terrified me because I'm just like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it, it makes me so angry. Uh, and I don't think that grit in and of itself, the concept is bad. I think it's I think it's worth exploring. I find it really fascinating. But what scares me is that it's going to be the newest tool. It could be touted as the newest tool, which is not to say anything of you know Lee Duckworth mm-hmm. or other people who are in education circles or who are researchers and who know much more about this than I do. I'm nervous that grit can be touted as this new salve that's just gonna 
oh, so, okay, even though we don't have to, you know, we have these structural inequalities and these kids are lacking resources, if we just teach them grit, which is funny to me that grit is touted as this new concept because grit is essentially, that's like the the lodestone of black ambition. That is like, excuse me, the cornerstone of black ambition. So, like, I'm mad we got to this point. Like, <laughs> it's probably like 53 minutes in because this actually just really, really made me think of something else that really relates to that. So, mm-hmm. there are actually a couple of articles I'm trying to, I was trying to find one of the other ones right now that deal with this exact same topic. So, one of them, and I think we actually talked about this a long, like a long time ago, unfortunately, obviously not like recorded. No. <laughs> but so there was an article that talks about why minority, why, why some minorities are more successful than others. <gasps> oh my gosh. We talked about, this was like from this January? This was like, from, like yeah, way, way yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, New York Times. Yeah, exactly. And so this New York Times article basically tried to almost develop a formula for it. Um, they called mm-hmm. it drive. They didn't call it grit. But, but they found that specific minority groups, Africans, a lot of Asian groups, mm-hmm. in terms of like, you think about like Koreans, Chinese. Um, um, Japanese. Some Japanese. Japanese. And I want to say they also said that people who are culturally Jewish also. Yes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that shame aspect comes back into it and plays like right into that. Like that was actually one of their factors in terms for creating and teaching drive. Right. And, you know, that was like the unhealthy way of approaching it. But there was actually this really interesting article in the Times as well by uh, Paul Tuff called Who Gets to Graduate? There's these researchers at the University of Texas, and they were trying to get a better handle on how they could create an environment where minority students stick around longer. And I hate to say tough it out because it makes it seem like they couldn't take it. Mm -hmm. But you know, minority students were experiencing all of these problems on top of them struggling with the work right. that was causing them to um, to drop out. Obviously, mm-hmm. the graduation rates for minorities are, are much lower than they are for white students. So they created this program to kind of create this grit, create drive. And it's not approached in the same manner. It's a little more touchy-feely. Which is fine. I like that. You know, basically what they found, almost creating like an It Gets Better campaign. Oh my gosh. Changed the game. So what they would do, they would have... Yo, I'm mad as hell you never sent me this. I'm, I'm sorry. go ahead. I was sending it to you. It's really good. Right, you sent to me now. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So they had these students on the first day of their like sophomore year re- like record these narratives. So they had to write a small essay and they also had to record like an audio piece where they basically talked about how they like they struggled and you know they went through a lot they had a lot of like setbacks but they just worked with you know their peers and worked with the professors and it got better like you know they were able to kind of work through it and really you know feel a lot more comfortable in the environment even though there weren't that many minorities Mm -hmm. be able to progress and the students who participated by watching these narratives or reading these narratives had an amazing surge in terms of performance. And there were other components as well. They had like really intense tutoring. They got a lot of minority professors together and created like support groups for them as well. But the program performed so well, they're actually in the process of exporting it to the larger, to everybody, which goes back to that everybody needs that drive teaching. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I thought it was really, really, really interesting. The connections there. We should probably come back and talk about that at another time. Yeah, we should actually. We definitely should. You know, it was amazing to really, to really think about all of these factors that go into drive, that go into ambition. But I think the thing that the component that comes after that is what happens when you reach a little bit of success. So you know, one of the things she talked about was that you know, no matter what she achieves and she has an amazing amount of achievements oh and this was gosh. like like a like a starter course a one-on-one course for me 
But she talked about how she got her PhD, you know, how she's written, you know, multiple published books. Oh my gosh, she now- she's such, she's a prolific essayist. Yeah. Like, she's not just a prolific essayist in these huge publications, but also on in different online spaces. She is frequently, she's on Twitter all day long. I know because I follow her. Um, she has an amazing Tumblr. Like, this woman is, any, like, she obviously wouldn't say this about herself in the article, but any medium she gets to write... She just likes the shit the fuck up. Yeah. I mean, she legit. I, I'm not even going to lie. Like, I, I I, don't know why why I had issues. We but, like, are, you know, I... I everybody got to learn sometimes. Exactly. Greg I'm a fan. That. I'm a, I'm he a did. fan. He did say that. Yeah. But, no, I am a fan. And I also identified with this idea that... Not idea. With, you know, this feeling that she had of, like, regardless of all of these things, she still is not satisfied. And a part of that, she said a part of that not being satisfied, I think comes from, and I might be, you know, conflating her words, but I think a part of it comes from just that original experience she had back in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And a, a part of that also comes from the kind of needling that she's experienced at like every point in her life Absolutely. at at the hands of, of white and, you know, and other cultures you know she talked about people thinking she was an affirmative action student because she was the only black person in a phd program and a variety of other things that that kind of caused this this perception that's essentially what that is that somebody seeing you where you're not supposed to be yeah and you know calling calling you out many times publicly calling you out it doesn't always have to be you know microaggressions sometimes people will just flat out call you out in front of everybody even i think about when roxanne gay they announced that she was the um editor of the toast new uh, vertical the butter yeah there were people on twitter all day coming for her credentials like she ain't worthy. Right. Like she ain't fucking worthy. Yeah. Like all you have to do is look at a New York Times bestseller list. You're going to see the woman's name twice. Yeah. Twice in the same year. <laughs> twice. And I mean, the interesting thing, the thing that I can, that I can kind of connect this with, and this is sad to, to compare the two, but also, already, already, you already, you might know I, where I I'm going. Your, I don't even know what you're going to say, but, but I can already tell us that it's about to be some shit, but go ahead. But like Blackish, where Homeboy got the SVP of Urban. Like, oh, I'm not yes. going to lie. I would have been mad too. I wouldn't have did the ignorant shit that he did in terms of like no, the commercial. No, because I still need to go to work. I still need to get Exactly. Paid. Like, let's be real. Yeah, if I got four fucking kids, <laughs> I'd be like, thank you. Thank you. Like, uh, you just want to straight. Thank you. Thank you much. If I was Rainbow, I would have had a lot more issues with that <laughs> yeah, yeah. would because he was wild but i mean it's crazy to think no matter where you get to there are always going to be people who are trying to add an asterisk to your name or have these caveats or disclaimers about like mm-hmm. who you are and why you have your success honestly though that still didn't i mean it bothers me but it feels like such a constant it's like normal i was like but okay it's it's like yeah i mean it's it's white noise that wasn't what struck me about for me, didn't connect with like gatekeepers or people like denying my success. Cause you know, I am very confident in you are, you <laughs> in are what I have achieved. Yourself. You're feeling yourself but 24 7. I do never feel satisfied. I know that about you also. It's something that's it's frustrating. It's also kind of scary because I've seen the same thing in my family in terms of oh, like you could one could guess yeah a few people that come to mind that i know but one could guess like i i talked to people and it was it, it was really interesting when i went back from my high school reunion because i've hit these quote-unquote markers of like what i'm supposed to be doing mm-hmm. if you if someone was doing like a profile of you and they use the word successful you're thinking like this person is rich like that's that's my immediate connection okay to successful. so you're saying like oh, okay like you're you're obviously successful but you're not like you're not i'm not like jay-z yeah you're not fucking i'm not killing it out here but like i'm you know i've done i've done okay i don't feel that at all i feel just as 
quote unquote behind. Oh, I was going to say behind. I've always felt, I've always felt behind. I've always felt behind. And even, you know, I like I said, when you talked about never feeling satisfied, never feeling successful, I'm comfortable saying that I have not reached, you know, a level of professional success that I feel, I mean, I still feel kind of young. And I, I know I mean, that I'm a little young. bit, yeah, I'm still kind of like in the early stages, but I know plenty of people who are further along than I am in their careers, in different, all in different fields. And I'm talking like people who are getting like degrees at the, at the top graduate schools for their field yeah. or, you know, in Ivy League or having these amazing jobs or like maybe are one of the top, you know, or in that top like five, three to 5% of the people who do their job in the country. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And whenever I point out, well, these people are, maybe they're related to me, maybe they're friends with me, but. I'm always like, well, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, and they don't see it. It's like, it's not, they're like, yeah, well, I think of one of our very best friends who went to graduate school, like, you know, she graduated, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago. She was always so stressed out in school because there were so many, I didn't realize it. We had been in sort of a Howard bubble and like the post Howard bubble where you stay in DC. When you go to a different environment where you're no longer like in that like, safe place, you don't, when you're in that, that DC bubble or that, that HBCU or HBCU light or like diet HBCU, which is kind of actually how we live now. If you think about yeah. our the way our social life sometimes works, when you leave that and you're in a starkly different environment, she just all of a sudden was like met with all of these people who, whether or not they were gatekeeping, they always were going to have more. So even if she went in and she did her best, yeah, part of it was going to be dissatisfaction because of the same dissatisfaction that I think we're all that Roxanne is getting at and that we all kind of experience. But another is like you're always going to be looking sidelong at the people around you who likely aren't black and what it is that they can have that you may never have access to. And so like I don't if she didn't say that explicitly and I don't, I don't mean to put words in her mouth, but I know that sometimes for me that's that can be there. I actually do think she kind of said that. I mean, the one part that I kind of pulled out, I think relates to that mm-hmm. really well. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. Oh, go for it. <laughs> All along, though there were these insistent reminders of how, even with all these advantages, certain infrastructures so profoundly shaped by racial inequality would never willingly accommodate me or my experiences. Like, that's what you were talking Mm -hmm. about. I would never be able to work hard enough. I didn't have to be twice as good. I had to be four times as good or even more. But she said, this is why I'm relentless. This is why I'm not satisfied and likely never will be. That that shit is scary to read from someone who has two New York Times well, yes. best-selling books. Right. And, Somebody who I look at yeah. every day and like... Um, curious to see just what she's what what is she eating for breakfast like she's how is she gonna word that like and this is you know she still feels the dissatisfaction i used to i've seen it in i don't know i used to always i guess attribute it to and this is why it was almost scary for her to name it because i i've seen it in a lot of people i know who are actually wait this is something this is some new shit I used to think I only saw it in friends of mine or family members of mine who were type A. Mm -hmm. But you talked about, we just talked about how you were kind of a slacker. And like, even for a while, like I kind of was too. But I got to a certain age, maybe somewhere around 24, 25. Actually, no, in my early, like in my earlier 20s, I was like so fucking serious about being an adult and like having my shit together. But I got, I, I sort of, once I left like sort of like young adulthood and I realized that I was running the same race with the rest of the world, I've had like a, adult onset type a personality disorder which is obviously completely made up but but i know that feeling. yes you know that <laughs> feeling and i've seen it in so many other pe- it's, it's not the first time that now that i like now that she's kind of put this in context and she's kind of named it it's 
even if you don't, even if it's not your national natural inclination, like I am a, t- a, a type B personality to the fucking core. And I know that in many ways you are too. Yeah. But we both hit this point where we were just like, yo. It's, and, it, and it's not just like becoming an adult or growing up. It's more like, it's, it's not just getting your shit together, quote unquote. It's also this, I gotta, I, I need to get up every day and I need to be trying to fucking get it. Because if I don't, I do not know what will happen to me. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna make it. Right. Exactly. And that's so bizarre when I hear you say that. I look at you and I know you, I'm your friend, I know your life. When you say, I don't know if I'm gonna make it, that to me and my, and like logically, I'm like, that sounds preposterous. You know what I'm saying? But I know what you feel. Yeah. Because I, I feel that all the time. I still feel two steps away from poverty. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm much further than that. And like, you know, there, there's a level of privilege just floating in the ether right now with what we're talking about mm-hmm. but the truth is like i really feel like with two mistakes i could be everything that i've worked for could be done it's oh, done always i know ne- that feeling never it never it never leaves me overall i mean i think to kind of i mean i know we have to kind of wrap it up but this article is just amazing and i think to bring it on end it on a lighter note i think the price of ambition that's not the the title of the article is really that shame now whether it's caused by your parents or caused by these systemic factors white supremacy patriarchy capitalism like, right, racism. <laughs> racism. <laughs> like, fun stuff. Yeah, it's there. For me, a lot of it still came from my parents because before I knew white supremacy, racism, patriarchy, and all of those, not buzzwords, but all these real well, things that, terms yeah, academic terms, shit. I knew what they told me. And they told me that if I wasn't perfect. If you don't, if you, if you're not perfect, you don't get to play. Yeah. You don't get to participate. <laughs> That shit really messed me up. And it, it, it reminded me of, so recently, this Adrian Peterson, you know, situation where he mm-hmm. beat his kid. So they were, they were, they were, the NFL commentators were talking about this. And it was interesting because they kind of, they went off the rails and they were like speaking from the heart. One of them, Chris Carter, was like. I was going to say, I don't know anything about sports, but I knew that guy's name because I watched the video. Yeah. And he was like. I'm sorry, my mom beat me, and it was it was what she knew to do. Yes, but my mom was wrong. But my mom was wrong. That connects with me so much. Like, I love my mom to death. I, and it wasn't just my mom. It was my mom and my dad. But I think that that's wrong. I don't know what right looks looks like. Like, oh, I don't no. know how to give it to my kids better. But I know that it's got to change. Absolutely. I, like, I, like I told you earlier, I don't... I want my children to be, you know, should I have them? Jesus Christ. I want them to be unburdened. I want them to be, think like, oh God, I'm about to quote Kerry Washington. I'm about to quote Kerry Washington. Quota. Right. I can't remember the exact words, but I'm about to quote Kerry Washington. And I don't like, like she's, you know, fucking Intozake, Shange, but she, she said something about how she doesn't want to live in a world where people don't, her race can't be acknowledged or, you know, she's, people are colorblind to her race. She also doesn't want to live in a world where she's defined, her choices and her life's trajectory, I think maybe she said, is defined by it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want for my children. I still want them to have the same, the same like pride in, in our shared heritage and in our family's heritage and all the things that her, you know, like four parents did to be able to like, all all the things my children's four parents did to make their lives possible and hopefully make their lives very easy. But I, I don't want them to ever feel limited. And like you said, the shit, like I don't, I don't want them to feel that shame. And I don't want them to see me experiencing that shame. I want them to feel light. I want them to feel free. And on that note, on that note, it's been good. I need like, I need like a, like a warm apple cider. I know I need one. I need one with like some alcohol in it. I just need to watch adventure time for a little bit. Just come away from this. I was going to say, yeah, I might, I might go on ahead and get on, on Netflix. Transparent. Um, 
<laughs> oh, yeah. You told me to watch Transparent. Anyway, thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Yep. Bye. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.